Section 9 of Harper's Young People, Volume 1, Issue 25, April 20th, 1880. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michelle Hanna. Harper's Young People, Volume 1, Issue 25, April 20th, 1880. The Story of George Washington by Edward Carey, Chapter 2. After the close of the French and Indian War, Washington, then in his 27th year, married Mrs. Martha Custis and settled down to a Virginia planter's life at Mount Vernon. His neighbors elected him again and again to the House of Burgesses of the colony, a body much like one of our state legislators. Here, he did not talk much, but he kept close watch of matters and knew, as nearly as he could, all the facts that were needed to make up his mind, so that he had a good deal of weight with other members, and yet was very modest. When he first took his seat in the House, the Speaker was directed to thank him, in the name of the people, for his great services as an officer. This the Speaker did in glowing terms, quite unexpectedly to Washington. Washington rose to reply, his face flushed, he struggled to speak, but could only stammer and stood speechless and trembling. Sit down, Mr. Washington, said the speaker with a smile. Your modesty equals your valor, and that surpasses the power of any language that I possess. After Washington had been some ten years at Mount Vernon, looking forward to the peaceful and easy life of a wealthy farmer, certain things happened which seemed then of small account but which were to lead to a great change in his career. The government of Great Britain undertook to raise money in America for use on the other side of the ocean. This government was made up of the king and the parliament, and the parliament was for the most part chosen by the people of England. The people of America were not allowed to choose any of its members, and when the British government declared that the Americans would raise money for it, the Americans had no one to vote for them or speak for them on that question. They thought this was not fair. They were willing to pay the expenses of their own governments because they had some voice in them, but they would not help pay the expenses of the British government in which they had no voice. The British government passed an act which said that every written promise to pay money must be upon stamped paper, which could only be got by buying it from British officers. If the promise was not on this kind of paper, the man who signed it need not pay. The British thought this would bring in a good deal of money, but the Americans would not use the stamped paper. They seized that which was sent over and burned it. Other kind of taxes were tried, but the Americans would pay none of them. Washington took the side of his countrymen with great zeal. He wrote to a friend, I think the Parliament of Great Britain have no more right to put their hands into my pocket without my consent than I have to put my hands into yours. But the British government insisted and sent over troops to Boston to try and force the people to submit. Washington was one of a number who proposed that a Congress, or great meeting, should be called to arrange for resisting the taxes, and he was chosen to go to the Congress which was held in Philadelphia in September 1774. Meanwhile, more soldiers were sent over, 
an attempt was made on the 19th of April, 1775, to seize some powder which the Americans had at Concord near Boston, and the result was the Battle of Lexington, where a good many Americans were killed, but where the British soldiers were finally driven back. Large numbers of men took their guns and gathered at Boston to watch the British troops and keep them in the city. They came from Massachusetts and the other colonies called New England, from Connecticut and Rhode Island, and from New Hampshire and Maine. The Congress came together again in May 1775, and Washington was also there. The Battle of Lexington had been heard of, and the people were everywhere angry and excited. The Congress resolved to resist all attempts by the British to force the country to submit. It called for troops and guns and powder from the various colonies. It adopted the soldiers around Boston as a part of the Continental Army, or the army of the whole country. It chose Washington as commander-in-chief to have the direction of all the soldiers. When this was made known to him, he thanked Congress for the honor, but he added, I beg it may be remembered by every gentleman in this room that I this day declare with the utmost sincerity I do not think myself equal to the command I am honored with. He also refused to take any pay for his services. I will keep an exact account of my expenses, he said. These I doubt not Congress will discharge, and that is all I desire. Washington hastened to Boston, learning of the Battle of Bunker Hill on the way. He found some 17,000 men around Boston and took command of them on the 3rd of July, under a great elm tree on the common in the village of Cambridge. He was then 43 years old and a very tall and fine-looking man. His features were large. His eyes were of pure blue, usually grave, but full of kindness and at times very merry. His manners were gentle but full of dignity and they often seemed very cold to those not well acquainted with him, though at heart he was not cold. To be continued. Puck and Blossom from the German of Marie von Olfers, Part 2 Ow! sighed Blossom. That hurt! Never mind, said Puck, comfortingly. Things never go right the first time. It'll be better by and by. Then they went, and they went, till they came to a great big pond. This is a horrid world, sighed Blossom. Hope we dot to the end of it now. Hope we'll soon get back to our good old egg. But let's go see how it is over there first, said Puck. Ducky, ducky, come and carry us across. Ow, but then my little white frock will dit all dirty said Blossom. What does that matter, answered Puck. We shall see how it is over there. Over there was very much the same as it was over here. The duck ducked them finely. So you'll know how it is down here too, he said. Dripping, they stood upon the shore. Ow, ow, sighed Blossom, looking very miserable indeed. If it doesn't get better soon, I don't want to see anything more at all. I don't. Of course it'll get better, said Puck. The sun'll dry us. The sun looked out condescendingly from the clouds for a moment and then disappeared. Come, Blossom, said Puck. 
Who cares for the old sun? Just as though there wasn't any fire anywhere but up there. There's some down here, too. I know where it lives, down there in that little house. Yes, down there in that little house. In the ashes, inside the stove, said the cat, who was looking after things while the cook was away. It's asleep, said Puck. Wait, I'll soon wake it up. So he blew and he blew, but it would not wake up at all. The sparks looked out at him with grim and wrathful eyes, while Puck blew more and more madly on. At last, it did wake up. It sprang out of the stove, wild and raging. It grew bigger and bigger. The children fled, the fire behind them. Blossom ahead, terrified, shrieking, screaming. The fire had caught Puck, had wrapped him around in a great sheet of flame. But Blossom cried and cried and cried, so bitterly that the fire was all put out, and there was nothing left but a great black smoke. Then Puck gathered all there was left of him, and they went sorrowfully on their way to find their egg. Ah, me! It was broken in two and gone, but the nest was still hanging on the tree. In great haste, they climbed in, never venturing to leave it again, and if they are not dead, they are sitting there still. The End End of Section 9